We want to thank uh, Jim, uh, who is uh, Devin's mentor and friend, uh, for coming and uh, ministering to us, and also Meredith as she has led our, our hymn singing. And uh, Devin is on vacation, and Allegra is in the Philippines. So uh, we uh, thank God for them, and thank God for uh, Meredith and Jim uh, ministering this day. Well, today is, uh, is a day in which we have opportunity to go back to what we started a few weeks ago, actually three weeks before um, we've been in the book of James, or the letter of James, or the epistle of James. But before we do so, let's look to the Lord in prayer one more time. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for just uh, the grace that is amazing. We thank you for your love, which is amazing as well. And we thank you for your word that is truly amazing, that is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions, intentions of even our hearts this morning. And we pray as we look in this um, powerful uh, letter that speaks to us about where we live and how we live, that you might give us attentive ears and hearts that are open to respond. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Mentioned to you is uh, three weeks ago that we were in the book of James, and because of that, I thought uh, we might need to do a little bit of review. As you look at God's word in many ways, as you look at either at a, uh, a letter like uh, James, which is uh, five chapters long, or if you look at a rather larger book, uh, maybe one of the Gospels, uh, you can uh, read the, the letter in its entirety, or the Gospel, or, uh, or take the book of Psalms, which would take you a little bit longer to read the, the, the section in its entirety, or you can break it up into bite-sized pieces. And when you break it into bite-sized pieces, you can also get some themes that seem to flow through the individual passages you're looking at. And if I were to do that with uh, the first 11 verses in the, gospel, in, the, in the epistle of James, I would say this is the getting passage. What, what is that God wants us to get? And I put it this way in the first two weeks. I said it's, it's about getting uh, better rather than bitter. And, and in many ways, that's a choice all of us has to make. As we go through life, we're going to get either better or bitter. And then also we looked at it right after that. We talked, well, okay, if that's the goal, get better than better, how are we supposed to do that? And that's the whole idea of getting it to work. And for many people, that's the struggle they have with Christianity is they've heard about it, but they say, I don't, I don't quite get it. How is that supposed to happen? I mean, it sounds good, but I don't see too many people actually experiencing or living it out. And I just thought about it. I skipped um, Next week we'll get you. So uh, um, it shows you that uh, I have brain freezes at times. And I just had a brain, huge brain freeze with Michael. So say bye, Michael. He was going to be a great testimony about what happened in camp last week. So my apologies there. Um, I need to get it right sometimes, right? So th there, there's an aspect where we need to get it there. Uh, and then this morning we're going to be talking about getting satisfied. For some people, after they realize what the Christian life is all about, they say, I didn't know this is what I signed up for. It's not quite as easy as I thought. And in fact, after the first service, one of uh, our members um, came up to me and said, I really needed it, but it's not very easy. And, and we need to understand that. The, the, the life that God has promised for us is just amazing, but it's not easy. And so, as we look at this letter, and I'm going to give somewhat of a review of it, and then we're going to get down to just that very short section that we're going to look at that's new this morning, is this was written by a rather unique individual in all the writers in the New Testament. It actually has something in common with one other writer in the New Testament, his half-brother Jude, or his brother Jude. 
But we're, we're talking about James, who, who saw Jesus from when he was a child. But James, in many ways, we can relate to because, just like us, sometimes we, we have doubts and questions. We, we see it, but we don't quite get it. And so James, for most of his life, did not believe in the one that he saw do amazing things, live a life that was unmatched by anybody else, that was God-like because it was from God, said things that no one else had said, and in that day they, they loved to follow rabbis or teachers. They would have their five favorite teachers, like sometimes we do as well. And Jesus became every person's favorite teacher because he said amazing things. That's what it said about, that they were amazed at what he had to say. And it was, it was not only what he said, but how he said he spoke with authority. And yet James struggled with it until that little thing called the resurrection. He comes to faith. God anoints him as not only a follower of Jesus Christ, but he becomes a leader in the church. Often we think of Peter being the leader of the first century church, but in many ways James was. He, he brought the churches together in Acts chapter 15 to the, that great council that decided, how are we going to incorporate people who aren't Jewish into God's program? And James led that out. And, and James is inspired by the Spirit to, to write a letter for not only the churches then and the people then, but for us as now. And, and he begins running to the people he's writing to. Uh, they're they're going to catch up immediately what he has to say. So it begins this way. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Now, that's a fairly simple way to start a letter. If you were in the first century, you begin with telling who you're, who's writing it to the per- people who are going to be reading it in the beginning. We usually put it at the end in the snail mail, the ones you used to have to put in a mailbox, you know, that kind of letter. You'd sign it at the end. Uh, but in the very beginning, this speaks so much about what is happening. James, who could have called himself, hey, I'm, I'm the brother of Jesus, says, I'm simply a bondservant. I'm just a slave for the one who came and set me free, which is kind of that oxymoron. I'm, I'm a slave, but I'm set free. But he identifies who he's, who he's writing to, the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. And you're thinking, is that just um, unnecessary details? No, because he, he says, I'm writing to you who, if we were to contemporize it, I'm writing to you who are refugees. You're the people who are, who are crossing from Syria into Turkey. You, you are the people who are having to leave your homeland and go to a place that, that no one else really wants you to be there. You have a language maybe the other people don't really understand. You, you have to go from a place where you've left everything that was precious to you. Maybe you had a big home. Maybe you had a significant job. Maybe you had prominence in your community and you had to leave it all. Not because ISIS has arrived on the scene, but because you have chosen to be a follower of Jesus Christ and you've been thrust out because of persecution. Not because of economic reasons or or political reasons, but for spiritual reasons. You've, You've lost it all. And James writes you and says, greetings, which actually literally can be translated, rejoice, <laughs> be glad, don't worry, be what? Happy. And they're thinking, who are you writing to? I know who I'm writing to, to the 12 tribes dispersed, driven out. And then he gets to the point, right in the beginning, he says, consider it all what? Joy when you encounter various trials. 
And, and this is where we get the idea of the getting. We need to get and decide, are we going to get bitter or are we going to get better? And he tells those who naturally have so many things to be bitter about, they've lost it all, directly related to their faith. Not just circumstantial, but because they were Christians, they had to be taken away into another land. He says, I, I, I want you to not only have faith, but to live out your what? Your faith. And for some of you this morning, maybe that's what you're wrestling. I haven't made that first step. I haven't been convinced or I haven't decided to, to totally trust in Jesus yet. And, and that's the first step of faith. But let's be honest. After the first step, there is a second step and a third step and a fourth step. And it's a step every single day. Am I going to trust Jesus today? Or am I quitting this whole thing called the Christian life? Because God's plan for us is faith should always be in the present tense. It's not a past tense. Well, yeah, I remember back when I believed. Well, that's great. We all have a starting point. But if somehow you're not still believing, one, there's a question whether you really did believe. And then if you are not believing now, then you're not living out what you said you trusted in and whom you trusted in. And so often of that, so, so easy of a description of that is, well, how are you doing? Often when we greet people, say, we'll say, how are you doing? And we'll come back with, I'm doing fine. And James would say, is that really true? Are you really doing fine? Because I know what you're going through. You're going through trials. In fact, he says, not only just trials, you're going through various trials, which means all kinds of them, all shapes and sizes. And I want you to understand right in the very beginning, God has a plan for your life. And that plan is, is I want you to experience the goodness of God even when bad things happen. So consider it all joy. Not that what you're going through is, is something that will provoke a, and promote a, a silly smile or a grin on your face, but you realize there's, there's a purpose in what I'm going through. It's, it's going to be good because it's going to be good. I feel, I feel good about it, and if I feel good about it, there, it produces a joy within me. So he says, in the very beginning, I, I want you to get better rather than bitter. And, and he adds another clue to this is why and how this can happen. He says in the next verse, knowing, and, and really, let me just throw this in for free. Uh, Warren's not here because he's on a trip, but anyway, this is free. You can tell him I gave him something for free if he wasn't here, okay. Is that knowing, really when you study the Bible, there's basically three things God wants you to do when you respond to the Word of God. He wants you to know something, He wants you to feel something, or He wants you to do something. No, feel, or do. And you can see this in the passage here. The do part is consider. I want you to make a choice, a conscious choice, to take whatever you're going through and say, I want to get joy out of this. I want to experience the goodness of God. What he wants you to feel is the goodness of God. He wants you to have a joy. And, and what he wants you to know is what he's going to say right here. Okay, how is this possible? Well, know this. That the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, if I knew whatever I would go through would make me the kind of person that was perfect or complete, or I'd have nothing lacking in me, I'd be pretty motivated to what? To do it. And he's saying, I want you to understand it. I'm going to put you on a, this is almost like an infomercial. Anybody ever seen an infomercial? You know, just buy this product, just start this diet, this uh, uh, buy these DVDs, exercise program, and you will once look like this, and now you'll look like what? This. And they go, wow, if I'll look like this, I'll buy it. 
because I'll, you know, I'll be perfect. I'll, there'll be nothing missing in my physical per, you know, presence. And, and see, this is, this is not just a slick sales uh, pitch. God is saying, look, if you'll have my perspective on life, you will not get bitter, you'll get better, because I want you to know this. I don't waste things that you go through, and I will use it for good, and you will come out whole and complete, and there'll be nothing missing. Now, you know, we can envision this or illustrate this in so many different ways in terms of life. I was talking to uh, my son, and uh, this, is, this is all for Clyde and Jeremy. Okay, my, my, my younger son is, is a runner, you know, cross country, and, and uh, ran in high school, ran in college, and, and so that this, uh, this past week, I, I woke up kind of sore, you know, and I, it wasn't because I did a lot of running, but I just woke up sore, and I said, I said, Matt, you know, when I feel sore, is it, is it because I'm out of shape? He goes, well, it could be, Dad, but, you know, sometimes when I would do a hard workout, I'd be really sore, and this, this, is, this is almost like insane, but he said, but I would feel good about feeling sore. And why did he feel good about feeling sore? Because I know I did a good workout and I'm going to be so much better the next day when I'm running. And, and so it wasn't that the soreness, he had a silly smile on his face, because, because I worked out well, I, I know I'm going to be so much better the next day. And, and there was a sense of joy in that. He said, I felt good about it. And see, if we can have that perspective on life when we go through difficult times, that there's going to be a good from it, it'll be a good soreness, a good part of the pain going through the trial. That make sense? So he says, I want you to understand that. And he was talking about horrific things that they were going through because, again, they were the refugees of that day. If you're going to live out your faith, you need to do something, which is make a choice that whatever you're going through, you're going to, you're, you're going to get God's perspective on it then I want you to feel something because that's what I want you to feel, the joy of God's presence in your life. And then I want you to know something, you're going to be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Now, that's getting better rather than bitter. But you still might be saying, I still don't quite get this. How's this supposed to work? Because I can't do it. I just, I've tried, it does not work. And no matter how hard I try to have that attitude, it doesn't, doesn't pan out. So he goes on, James says, okay, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So now he's saying, I want you to understand that this, this is not a self-help program. This is not one of those infomercials, again, that is trying to say, if you just buy into this program, you know, just work a little harder, buy the right product, you'll get it. This is not you doing it, it's me doing it. But if any of you lacks wisdom, and, and really the answer to that is, who lacks wisdom? All of us. Okay, all of us lack wisdom. So he said, but any of you lack wisdom, since all of you ask, let him ask of God. Now, have you ever asked uh, help from somebody and felt kind of guilty about asking them to help you? Anybody felt that way? I can point out to some people right here in this room, you, ask, you try to give them help, they always tell you no. And it's, and it's, well, I don't want to be a burden to you, you know? I'm just looking at Wynema. She always does that. Every time I ask her for help, she always wants to say no, Okay. And, you know, sometimes we feel guilty about, you know, asking for help because we feel like we're, we're putting them on them, okay? And part of the reason we've had it, maybe we've, we've asked for help from some people and they gave us a bad time, all right? But that's not who God is. He says, but if any of you um, lacks wisdom, which wisdom here would be defined not only in terms of, you know, being some kind of a 
a guru or some kind of smarter person than the ne person next to you. It's, wisdom is the capacity to know what's right and healthy to do in life. Okay? And so, but if any of you lacks wisdom, I have asked to God who gives to all generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him. So that verse that many people like to quote that don't know anything in the Bible said, God helps those who what? Help themselves. That's not in the Bible. Okay. What is in the Bible is God helps those who ask for what? Help. You see, that's what we need to remember, is God helps those who ask for help. So when, when we're struggling in a trial, when we're just overwhelmed, like you know, some of the conversations I had at the first service, is that, okay, you're at a good place because God wants you to lean upon him. And one of the lessons you will learn from this, we all learn from when we go through difficult times, our faith can grow better if we don't give up because we hold on to him. And God will give us the capacity, the wisdom to be able to see life from his perspective. So how do we get it to work? We ask God for help. It's all right to ask for help from God. But then he has another condition here. And by the way, this is all by way of review. If you're here for the first time, you're catching up to where we were, okay? There is a condition that we need to respond. He says, but he who asks must ask in what? Faith. And then he even challenges more. He says, without any doubting. Without any doubting. Because if you doubt, you're like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And then he, then he even defines this way. For he, asked in that way, you know, with doubt and not with faith, for he ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, what's the idea there? Because none of us come to God with perfect faith. Anybody come to God in 100% trust all the time? Anybody? Okay. If you were, I was going to say, come up here and you preach the rest of the message, all right? Okay, because I don't go to God 100% of the time with 100% faith. I mean, that's just beyond, way beyond me. So if, if that be the definition, then we might as all just give up. And that's the whole point of this passage, is don't give up. So what is he saying here? He, he's saying, when you come to me, you know, I believe, help me in my unbelief, be honest with me. But even primarily is, when you come to God and you're asking for help, then take the help that he gives you. So often when God kind of gives us direction or gives us help, and he gives us direction or help that we don't want, we say, okay, I don't want that, and I'm going to go a different path, right? If we pray, uh, let's say if we're sick physically, and we say, God, will you heal me? And it's all right to pray that, but if he doesn't heal you, and he says, I will give you the strength to go through your pain. And you say, well, I don't want that. I just want the pain to be dealt with. He said, yeah, no, but that's not according to my plan. I'm just going to give you the ability to go through the pain. And when we come to God and we ask with a faith that is double-minded, that's what he said. <laughs> if you ask with, that, with the doubt here, it's not the, the doubt of... Um, think there is no God or, or doubting that God has the power. He's not telling me. You're doubting that God is good in giving you what you need. And you're double-minded. I'll, I'll take what, 
what God gives me if he gives me what I think I need at the moment. And God says, I'll give you what I want to give you at the moment, and it will meet your need, but you've got to be willing to take it. Does that make sense? And so getting it to work is depending upon God and coming to God with faith without being double-minded in your ways and saying, okay, God, I'll take the help you want and the perspective on life that you have for me. And, and I know um, that whatever is the outcome of that, it will be good. If not for me, it will be good for others. And if you notice it, you have to go through some pain at times to get to the next place in your life. I was telling the first service, I don't know why it just popped my mind. Um, it, it might have been because my son Mark had just been leading worship with a guitar. And I don't know if you know this or not, but well, three, of my, well, three of my sons, well, my, my three sons all play guitar. Uh, my daughter plays the keyboard. But before my, my sons play the guitar, I play the guitar. And... Um, uh, the, the humbling thing is they've far, far surpassed me. But when I started ministry, uh, when I first became a, a senior pastor, I, I, I told the, the church, okay, I'll do anything, but the one thing I will not do, I will not lead worship. I will not lead music, okay? Not that I don't know anything about music, but that just, I just did not want to do that. Well, as soon as you tell somebody or God something you're not going to do, of course, what happens? You got to do it. So, so uh, I didn't do it very often, but we would do some uh, family campground type stuff where we bring the churches, uh, the church out in a uh, you know, in a campground, and uh, some of my worship people couldn't come, so I had to get out my guitar and I had to play a few songs. Well, I, I know three chords, four chords, whatever it might be, but I, I stopped playing, you know, for months, and then like, like a month or two months before, maybe two months before um, the, the, the program was going on, I had to start playing guitar again. Well, if you've ever played the guitar, what you find out is that when you play guitar, when you haven't been playing guitar, your fingers hurt. And the only time that your fingers don't hurt is when you get calluses on them. And when you first start playing, you say, I don't know if I want to go through this to be able to play those four chords. And then after you play the four chords for a while and then get the calluses, you know, say, well, I guess it was worth it. There was pain, but now that I've gone through it, then I was able to do something that, that was kind of fun to do like once a year. And for some of us, and we don't know what the time frame is, you're going through uh, some things right now and there's some pain involved in it. And the blessing is going to be for you for something in the future, or it's going to be a blessing for others as they watch you go through it. And aren't you amazed? It's really kind of the Bible study this week is, is that when we go through trials, well, people notice. And they begin to say, you know, maybe this, this faith of theirs is real. Because I don't know how I could go through what they're going through but they say they're able to go through what they're going through because of their trust in God and their relationship with Jesus. So James begins his letter just running. He says, I want you to get something. I want you to get better rather than bitter, count it all joy, knowing that good is coming. And he says, I want you to get it, get it as far as get it and knowing how it works. It's as simple as this. You, you've got to come to that point where you believe that God can help you and you're willing to take the help that he gives you. And, and then he takes a step back and he probably says, you know, I better get very specific, you know, on trials. I, I've been general now. I said various trials. Well, let's get down to specific, specific trials. And that's where we are now. And, and this is the, the theme of getting satisfied. And what he talks about now is the financial realm or the prosperity or lack of prosperity realm. And just in three verses, and this is what we're going to look at this, this morning, he, he talks about, okay, how do you get satisfied when things aren't going right? 
you know, when everything's going right, you're satisfied, but how do you get that way? Well, if you have your outlines, we'll get through this in the next uh, time we have. The biblical word for satisfaction is contentment. God wants us to be a contented people. And you could actually add an adjective. He wants to be us to be joyfully contented. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13 says this. But I, this is Paul, and he's right in prison, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Again, you have that idea of joy and multi- multiplied joy. That now at last you revive your concern for me. And one of the things that brought him joy was not just simply because he was in prison, but sometimes when you're going through difficult times, you find out who your real friends are, and you find out, man, these people really care about me. And so when Paul was in prison, he go, there are people who really love me. And man, that brings me joy. Does it bring you joy when people like you and love you? Shake your head like you're still listening to me. Okay? So that was simply a source of joy that he would not have experienced unless he had gone through that. Right? He, he would not have known who really was his friends until he realized it would have been easier not to be his friends than to be his friends. Right? So I rejoice greatly that now you revive your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Funny how I think of things in this service I don't think of in other services. You could really love a person and really care about a person, but no, I don't know how to show that to them. And then all of a sudden, an experience happens where you're able to show that to them because of their need, and all of a sudden, not only did meeting their need give them joy, but they realized that you really did care about them. Does that make sense? He says, look, at I, I know you're always concerned about it, but you didn't have opportunity to show it in any tangible way. Then he goes on and says this, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, this is a, you know, a favorite verse for people who who uh, play football and want to put it on their helmet or on their shoes or whatever it might be, or their, their wristbands. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which somehow gives the impression I can, win, I can score the winning touchdown, right? Now, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I'm glad they put verses on their, on their uniforms and things like that, but that's not what that verse is about. That, that verse is all about, can you go through the challenges of life and still be joyfully content? Can you truly be satisfied on the inside whether things are going the way you want them to go? That's what he's talking about here. And so as we look at this section, when I'm entirely getting satisfied, it's all about being content or getting content whether you've got a lot or a little. And that's what he speaks about in the passage that we're looking at. Let me just state the verses and then we'll look at them. Right after he tells people, don't be you know, double-minded, in all your ways, you know, trust me, don't come to me with doubt, ask for help. He says, all right, but the poor man is to glory in his humble circumstances. But the brother, the bro- the, but the brother, let me put it, the, but the bro- he even emphasized, but the brother in humble circumstances is, is to glory in his high position. And then he says, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will fade away and then he says this let me, let me give you a physical illustration of that. Uh, for the the sun r- rises like a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and its 
And, and the beauty of it is that parents will, will be destroyed. But we need to understand that there's an analogy here. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. So what is he talking about? As, you, as we think about trials, he said, let's get very specific. If you're going through adversity or prosperity, I want you to understand that a wrong response will rob you of your joy or your satisfaction or contentment. And that's what I try to put in your outline. Satisfaction or contentment can be lost through a wrong response to adversity or prosperity. Well, let's look at adversity. But a brother of, of humble circumstance is to exalt in his high position. That's what it says in James 1.9. So you could put it this way. If you are or feel poor physically, be excited that you are rich spiritually. Now, we, we, have, uh, we have all kinds of ways in our culture for people to get rich quick, right? Uh, it's called the lottery, all right? You ever been in some of those stores and people are just like putting money in like crazy buying lottery tickets or going through the stands and just buying, they're buying lottery tickets all, you know, just nonstop. And why are they doing it? Because they feel somehow if I get lucky, you know, my ship will come in and all my financial problems will be solved because I got the right number, right? And so what they obsess themselves is, the one thing I know in this life is, is I am not rich. And however they want to compare themselves with somebody else, they consider themselves to be poor. And as James writes to these people who have been dispersed abroad that are refugees, the reality is, the vast majority of them were poor. And so what does he to say to poor people and say, I want you to count it all joy? He said, well, you don't really understand my circumstances. He says, yes, I do. And I want you to understand that as you are, or at least feel, that you are poor physically, I want you to understand that you are rich spiritually. Now here's where faith really comes in. Do we really believe that or not? And James, at this point, kind of sounds like his half-brother, Jesus, doesn't he? Because look at, uh, look at the outline this morning and the verses I have there. Uh, how about Luke 6.20? And turning his gaze, this is Jesus, toward his disciples and followers, he began to say, Blessed, or happy, or joyful, are you who are, what's the next word there? Poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, however you want to understand the kingdom of God, and we could go on a whole series of messages on the kingdom of God, but however you understand the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is pretty what? Pretty big. And I want to understand you who think you are poor or feel poor in comparison to others are poor. I want you to understand you aren't poor. You are really rich. You have the kingdom of God. It doesn't get any better than that. And if we really grasp it, it would change how we feel about when bad things happen. Because look at it, no matter how bad it is, things are really good for me. Because I'm rich. Matthew 5, verse 5 says, Blessed are the gentle, and gentle was actually a word of, of, of almost slandering someone. Because I think in, the, in King James, blessed are the meek, okay, and meek sounds like weak, and people who were meek, people thought were weak. He said, look, if, if in the world you look like you're weak, I want you to understand that you will inherit the what? The earth. Now, I don't know how much property you have, but I would, in fact, I just saw on Yahoo News today the, the 50 richest men in the world, okay? And I, 
I don't care if you combine all 50 together, they don't own the what? The earth. But the Bible says that God's people, when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, all that's in the earth will be whose? Will be ours. Now we will own it with everybody else that knows Jesus and will be heirs of Christ. But look at everything that we see here that we sometimes will covet and envy. It's going to be all ours if what Jesus is saying is true. Romans 8, 16 through 18, it says, look at the suffering of this world have nothing to compare to the glories of the future. And Ephesians 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with, what does it say there? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, what's my point? I kind of belabored a little bit. Let me say this. How much would it change our attitude throughout life when we experience bad things, difficult things, negative things, things that seem to deprive us of things that we enjoy or appreciate, if we realize, look at, I'm really not poor, I am what? Rich. May the person who is um, in humble circumstances, Apostle Paul, in prison, all of his freedoms were taken away from him, was not a person who ordered out for whatever he wanted to eat for the next meal, okay? He, he, who, who was not able to use the, what he loved doing more than anything else, probably preaching to large groups of people. All of that was taken away from him. He says, look, I've, I have learned to rejoice in all these things. Why? Because he knew he was still rich. But then he turns and he says, okay, that's how you deal with adversity. How about dealing with prosperity? And he, and he speaks to those. He says, but the, but the rich man, you need to do the exact opposite. You don't glory in your high position. You glory in your humiliation. Now, let me put this in context. Um, if, if you live in America right now, which I think most of us here do, all of us are rich, comparatively. I mean, depending on what statistic you read or what survey you look, every single person in America is in the top 15% of all the world. And if you have a cell phone, a car, a place to live, you eat three meals a day most of the time, you are just so much better off than most of the people on this planet. And really what we need to look at is that, you know, we are all rich, either we're on the lower side of rich or the higher side of rich, or somewhere in between. So in a sense... That first part, you might have more resonant. You're going through adversity right now, but also you could also say all of us are going through prosperity. And we all need to recognize that this truth is, is inherent in the text, is that if you are or feel rich physically, be humble since here it is all temporary. And that's what he says. And the rich man to glory in his humiliation. Why? Because like flowering grass, he will what? Fade away. Now, I know some of you guys, some of you guys, some of you are gardeners, and you'll, you'll kind of get this picture. It, it, you love it when, you're, when you're, your flowers look good and you, you moan when they don't, right? Now, th this is what he's saying here. You know, these are two roses. This rose used to look like this rose. This rose will eventually look like this rose. Isn't that true? 
Because the scorching wind rises up and withers the flowering grass. It's nothing wrong with appreciating the rose that is blooming and is beautiful and the prosperity is there, but let's be honest, it's not going to last, right? It's going to fade away. So that which we so often worry about and fret about and are already concerned about, look, it's going to fade away. So appreciate what you have, but recognize God has given it to you to, to use it as a blessing for others. Luke chapter 12 is an interesting story in which you have a, the rich man who, who prospers, and there's nothing wrong with prospering. Some of the, the most generous people I know prosper and then give it out. But sometimes people prosper and they, they hoard it. And what the experience here is a man prospering. I just need to build bigger barns just to, just to keep it more, keep it all of it. And, and then all of a sudden, what happens? God speaks to him and says, look it, today your, your life will be taken and you're going to leave it all. It's all temporary. But, but I want, there's a fascinating passage I don't have time to go through, but in 2 Kings chapter 5, a little extra homework, you could read that story. It's the story of Elisha with Naaman. Remember the story of Naaman? Some of you might know the story, some of you might not, but Naaman was a, was a rich man. He had so many things. But he had one thing that was going wrong, and sometimes that will happen to us. We, a lot of things can be going right for us, but one thing will happen to us, and it kind of ruins our day. You know, it's like the bad hair day. Everything's going right, but you can't get your hair fixed. No, I don't usually think about that too much. But, let, but if, you ever, if you've ever been really healthy, and all of a sudden you stub your toe, you, you don't think about the rest of your body. You only think about your what? Your toe. Well, Naaman was just rich, powerful, influential, all kinds, but, but he contracted a disease called leprosy. And, and so he wanted God, and he, no, he probably didn't think about God doing it, but he wanted anybody to somehow deal with his leprosy. Found out by rumor that this man named Elisha, a prophet, was pretty good at doing some things and had power that other people didn't have. And, and so he went to, to Elisha and asked uh, for healing and uh, Elisha knew one of his bigger problems, or his biggest problem, was pride, and so he told him to go bathe yourself in this dirty pond, and he didn't want to do it, and then he was kind of challenged, well, if he asked you to do something heroic, would you have done it? Well, yeah, but I'm not going in some dirty pond. Well, and so he goes in the dirty pond, gets healed, comes out, and he is so overwhelmed with gratitude, he wants to make Elisha a rich prophet. Well, Elisha didn't want to have the reputation of doing things for hire, for money, and so he said, no, I'm not going to take it. God gets the glory. And so Naaman takes off, but he has a poor servant, Gehazi. Gehazi says, look it, this man wanted to give, and for whatever reason Elijah didn't want to receive, how about me? So he goes, and he thinks that's the source of happiness, goes, gets, gets the goods that was going to go to his teacher, his prophet, and Elisha becomes aware of it and says, okay, you received your reward now, but you're going to get Naaman's leprosy. So it doesn't really matter whether you have a lot or a little, you can still be filled with greed and envy and seeking joy from the wrong places. If God prospers you, great. If he doesn't, great. Because whatever you have or don't have, it's all temporary. The flower's going to fade. It's going to be like the grass is blown away, that which is fruitful. And so... Realize that this life is just preparation for the life to come, and it's preparing other people for that life that is to come. And God wants us, if, if we really understand, we, He wants us to be people who, who receive and then give. 
2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 says this, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. So the issue here is being satisfied by taking that which God gives you and enjoying what, he, what you have, being content with what you have. Not complacent, but be content and realize that, that we're called not to be owners, but managers and take what we have and, and be a blessing to others because God wants us to be satisfied to the point we are, we are givers. But I, I close this story. I was reading a story about this general who decided that he was going to have this strategic meeting with all his subordinate officers, and he had called this meeting. It was around a dinner table, and for some reason, the chaplain showed up, who was also an officer. And um, he didn't know really what to say to this chaplain, but he decided to start a conversation. And he, he, so he starts this, converse, this conversation with the, the chaplain. He says, Pastor, uh, can you tell me a little bit about heaven? And uh, the chaplain, Pastor, just kind of thought for a moment and looked at him very carefully and said, well, this is one thing I can tell you about heaven, that when you get to heaven, if you get there, you will not be a general. Because we need to understand that the status or the things of this world will pass away. And so we need to realize that, that whatever role or whatever state we're in, we can learn to be content. We can be joyfully satisfied because God can use anything and everything that we're going through for His purposes, for a testimony to others or to teach us the lessons that we would need to learn to to prepare us for what's next, to get the calluses on our fingers, to play the music that he wants us to play, whatever it might be. But it begins with knowing and desiring to feel and to do what God wants us to know and to feel and to do. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we might be a people that, that really get it, realize that we need your help, and that we, we want what truly satisfies, and we want to become better, not for our own sake, but for the sake of honoring you. We want to be people who receive, but people who give. And Father, we know that, that you want us to not only have faith, but to live it out. And Father, for anyone here this morning that is telling me outside in, we, we just really pray that they might understand this is where life begins, by trusting in the one who came to provide life. And just like the author of this, this letter in the New Testament had to come to a point where he put his faith in Jesus, people can put their faith in Jesus right now by simply saying to you, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. Forgive me of my sins. Make me a new person on the inside. I don't want to just rely on my own strengths and abilities, but I want to follow you. I want to live for you. And Father, for us who may have made that step of faith to begin, help us to keep taking steps of faith, trusting in you and not ourselves, taking what you give us and glorying in the riches spiritually that you have given us in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand this morning.